Welcome to the Pro Aging Podcast. I'm Steve Gurney, founder of Positive Aging Sourcebook. We're excited that you can join us for our interactive discussions with pioneers and thought leaders on a wide variety of topics related to aging and longevity. Today, we talk with Dr. David Wilcox, author of How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, a patient's handbook for survival. This was a very interactive session with lots of great questions and comments from the audience. So let's jump into the discussion. Okay, so now I am going to turn. Okay, so here we are. Um, uh, so welcome, folks. Uh, it is noon. Okay, so how was that for an, in, an introduction? So if you've attended these events before, you'll notice that I have a different background, and this is actually a real background. As I had mentioned earlier, uh, if you didn't jump in, today I'm at the Alfred House 4 Villa, which is a brand new remodeled uh, community in the Alfred House family of care. And we're just always trying new and different things here. So we figured today, let's do this um, discussion as a remote broadcast. So um, let me go through some Housekeeping, oh, and Bonnie Elliott, don't worry, we're going to get a tour of Alfred House at the conclusion of this uh, discussion today, but, um, uh, and, and if anybody needs to jump off, 
all like all of our discussions, this is going to be recorded. Um, but let me share my screen here real quick, go through a few housekeeping items, and then we will um, get this discussion going. Um, whoops. Uh, okay. Um, bear with me here. Okay. All right. Um, and um, uh, so for those of you joining, I saw a couple of little comments there. I usually sort of have a countdown timer that goes five minutes before the discussion. And instead of doing the countdown timer, for those that arrived early, I wanted to just let everybody know that I'm at uh, Alfred House 4 Villa, which is a brand new remodeled assisted living community in Rockville, Maryland. We're going to get a tour at the end, and we're going to get to meet uh, Dr. Vina Alfred and Ken Silverstein here in just a moment. But um, before we meet them, let me go through a few housekeeping items. First off, I want to thank Maryland Relay for their support in October. Maryland Relay is an absolutely amazing free program that we can all take advantage of for those in our lives, whether they be our client, a loved one, or ourselves. If we have difficulty communicating, Maryland Relay has a lot of great free resources like caption telephones and other a variety of services. Um, I'll make sure to drop um, Jenny's uh, contact information into chat. But um, if you're not familiar with the Relay program, uh, every state has them. And uh, you can uh, learn about the Relay program in Maryland through Jenny Pearson. But if you're from a different state, she could connect you with her cohorts um, around the country. Um, just a reminder to go to proaging.com for recordings or career center or provider search and copies of the current positive aging source book. Um, later this afternoon, this discussion will be there uh, online so that if you wanted to share it with uh, somebody that couldn't be here or if you have to drop off early and you wanted to watch the end part of the recording. Um, next week, we've got a bunch of great uh, discussions. Probably one of the more popular ones is going to be on Wednesday, the legal implications of solo aging. We've had a lot of discussions on solo aging. We're also going to have a roundtable discussion on ageism. And uh, if you're in Maryland, we're going to be spotlighting the brand new durable medical equipment reuse program that the Maryland Department on Aging launched. Um, Today, our discussion is going to be with Dr. David Wilcox, but before I bring Dr. Wilcox on, let me see if I can get um, uh, Ken and Dr. Alfred uh, on. Uh, Ken, if you, oh, here, I'm going to prompt you to turn your video on there, Ken, and um, let's get, uh, whoops. Hey, Ken. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing everything, pushing the right buttons, but I'm not. Yep, we got you. So, um, oh, because I can't see. I, all right, I don't see myself. Well, so, I, I can see Dr. Alfred's feet right now. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Okay, great. So, so I just wanted to show her new shoes, shoes off. Excellent. Um, Ken, before we get into our discussion with Dr. Wilcox, uh, can you and Dr. Alfred tell us a little bit about the Alfred House organization? And then after the discussion, we'll take a tour of your newly remodeled uh, community. Okay. Here. Okay. Um, so 
Dr. Alfred. Hello, everybody. This is Vina Alfred. And uh, Alfred House is turning 30 years old this year. We started in 1992. And uh, we are delighted to have you all listening to us. It is such a pleasure. And um, I had a concept in mind, and that was to provide something out of ordinary and a concierge service. And I believe we have been able to accomplish that through this smaller facility we called Alfred House Four Villa. Beside this uh, property, we have other nine facilities. Alfred House Symphony um, serves uh, the residents with cognitive uh, mental health issues. We have a medical director who comes, CNAs, GNAs, one to four caregiver, one caregiver for every four residents. That is our niche. We believe Great. in care and a very good uh, quality care for all our residents. For this particular facility, we envision uh, elderly coming in with problems, without problems, who don't want to care about cooking and housekeeping and laundry and going for groceries. We'll do all of that. We'll have a chef to cook what they want to eat and a driver to take them wherever they need to go, their transportation. And of course, uh, a med tech and a, a caregiver and a housekeeper. This is our plan for this particular facility. There I love it. Uh, there are other facilities which suit all kinds of budget. I know that uh, times are difficult and people have uh, limited budgets. Not everybody has um, long-term care insurance, so we accommodate all different types of budgets and we'll be glad to talk to anybody who's interested and now uh, I will introduce Ken Silverstein, who is our marketing director and our VP for business development. He will tell you where I left off. Excellent. Um, well, thank you, uh, Ken and Dr. Alfred. And uh, we, will, uh, we will link back up with you and learn more <clears throat> about Alfred House and this uh, this brand new remodeled community at the conclusion of our discussion with Dr. David Wilcox. Does that sound okay? Yep. That's fine. Great. Okay. We will see you shortly. So let me stop your video and mute you. And then um, let me uh, welcome uh, Dr. David Wilcox uh, to the um to the screen here dr wilcox uh there we got you all right <laughs> um and uh, as you can see here on on the screen there um dr wilcox is the author of how to avoid being a victim of the american healthcare system um this is certainly an interesting topic to all of us and before we dive into that um 
let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little about your background and what led you to writing this book. And then we'll dive into some of the very interesting topics that you cover in this book. Sure. Thanks, Steve, for having me today. I really appreciate it. Um, so the first thing you probably should know about me is why I became a nurse. I'm a doctorate prepared nurse. Um, and I had a handicap, well, I still have a handicapped daughter who lives in a group home. And I took her in and out of the healthcare system quite a bit. Um, I, was, I was working at a manufacturing plant. When they laid off, when they laid me off, I was able to get benefits and I decided to become a nurse. So I started as an LPN and I got my two-year degree. And then I, I got promoted to a house supervisor position. So I had to get my four-year degree. Then I, I was in school mode and my buddy said, let's just get our master's. So I did that. And then I went back and got my doctorate. The reason why I did that is because I have seen a lot of things in my almost 30 years in healthcare that really need people need to know to be safe. Uh, deals with ins you know, insurance companies, staying safe in a hospital. I mean, as a nurse, you know, we go into your innermost spaces. The doctor will diagnose you and he will, and he will say, nurse, do you work your magic. And that's where we, we pick it up. So it was really important to me as a doctor prepared nurse to let people know what's going on in the American healthcare system. Uh, the American healthcare system, we spend 17.8% of our GDP and we're at the absolute bottom of quality outcomes. Out of 11 industrialized nations, we're the 11th. Other nations spend 8.9% of their GDP um, and they have better results than we do. So we have a lot of room for improvement. Uh, and uh, you know that's what motivated me to write this book. I love it. Um, now, uh, I've got your, um, the, the book is available on Amazon. But um, I've got the table of contents open here. And uh, actually, here, let me share my screen because um, this could sort of serve as an outline for our discussion. But you've broken the book into three parts. The first part is staying safe in the hospital. The second part is paying for care. And, and oh, no, let's see, part, yeah. Part one, staying safe in the hospital. Part two, paying for your care. Part three is better a better healthcare system. Um, let's see, why don't we sort of use this as kind of an outline for our discussion. Let's start first with staying safe in the hospital. What are some of your thoughts on this area? Okay, so medical errors are the third leading cause of death behind cardiovascular disease and cancer, which is number one and number two. Um, in 2020, it became the fourth only because of COVID. So staying safe in a hospital is very important. So one thing I would want the listeners today to understand is that you basically have to inform your caregivers about your medications. If you're going to get hurt in a hospital, it's usually going to center around a medication. So for instance, Tylenol has three different names. If you get the brand name or if you get the generic form of it, or if you get the IV form of it, it's got three different names. It's hard to keep up with that if, if you're a lay person. So what you should do is write down all the, all the medications you take and supplements, put it on a card, put it in your wallet. And if you have to go to the hospital in a non-emergent situation, then print off several copies, give one to the intake nurse, 
Give one to the doctor who takes care of you. Give one to the anesthesiologist and a surgeon. Um, if you're going for surgery, they just keep handing them out because, you know, in electronic medical records, medication reconciliation is very difficult. It's very cumbersome and people make a lot of mistakes there. The other thing that you want to do is you want to be able to ask them, why am I taking this pill? What is this pill? And the safest way you can go into the hospital if it's a non-emergent situation is bag up your pills and ask them to give you your own pills. It'll save you money and it will also make sure that you, you know the names of the drugs. Great. Um, the, um, okay, so then um, I know you've got some some thoughts on prescriptions and, you know, this is also a good segue to talk about just medications in general. Yeah, before we do that, let me just uh, tell you one thing. There's a part in that first part about what to ask your surgeon. So, oh. uh, yeah, so my neighbor um, has to have hernia surgery and he got a copy of the book before he found out he had to have hernia surgery. So when he went in, he sat with his surgeon and he said to him, Okay, so tell me, am I going to be the first case of the day? Because statistically, if you're the first case of the day, you're going to do better. It makes sense, right? Surgeon's bright and all that. Then he said, are you going to be on call the night before? And the surgeon was like, well, no. And, and he's like, okay. So he asked him all these questions. Are you going to be doing the surgery? If you're in a teaching hospital, your surgeon may not actually do the surgery on you. It may be a resident or an intern. And you know, I don't know about you, but I don't want somebody... Um, practicing on me. I'm, if I'm paying this guy to do my surgery, I want him to do my surgery. So he asked all these questions. And, uh, and he said that the surgeon looked at him like he had three heads. He was trying to figure out how a layperson got this kind of information. So it was um, it, quite eye-opening. Well, you know, one of the, um, one of the professions, well, there's several professions that, uh, that we spotlight here on our discussions that are um, invaluable for folks that find themselves suddenly in a hospital. And one is the aging life care managers, is, is that oftentimes folks have used them through their decision-making. So if they suddenly find themselves in a hospital, it's sort of like they call their aging life care manager. But another profession that we've been spotlighting a lot are patient advocates. Yes. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, most people don't develop a relationship with a patient advocate before they go to the hospital. So if they have a crisis situation, they don't have a connection. But um, you're sort of alluding to the fact that most of us enter a hospital or a healthcare system, and we just listen to everybody who's got a white coat on and do exactly what they say. Right, exactly. So you bring up a really good point about patient advocates. So in my book, I say several times, if you don't have a nurse in your network, you need to get a nurse in your network. You need to find a family member who's friends with a nurse, take them to lunch, connect with them on social media. You need to have an advocate because if you're in the hospital by yourself, I mean, you're in the wild and especially if you don't know the environment. So the worst thing we can do as Americans is not understand healthcare before we enter into a hospital. It, it'll put you in harm's way. And that's exactly why I wrote that book. You know, what's funny. I, I think about my own neighborhood. We have two nurses that live down the street. And, um, you know, I mean, granted, we talk a lot about senior care, but the way that it works in our neighborhood is when the kids get injured, 
The first call is to our own neighborly advocate, this couple that are both nurses, and we call them up and sometimes do a little FaceTime or whatever, and they'll either say, oh, we can slap a Band-Aid on that or go directly to the emergency room and say X, Y, and Z. Um, otherwise, you're just sort of going into an environment that, where you don't really know the, the rules and, um, and the limitations. So this is really, uh, really good, good, good points. Um, yep. Okay. Um, I, uh, I, I brought up, so, so we're talking about staying safe inside the hospital. The other thing that I would say to the audience, the audience just to remind you, you can ask questions at any point in time by just typing them in Q&A, um, raising your virtual hand, and we'll address those. But uh, David, um, any other thing that you want to talk about, about staying safe inside a hospital, or should we move to part two, which is paying for your care? Sure. So if you're going to have surgery, make sure you have an advocate there. I did a, actually did a podcast with somebody who told me that he was taking care of his wife in the hospital and the nurse came in and drew up insulin. And he, he said, what are you doing? And, and the nurse said, I'm going to give her insulin. And he said, she's not diabetic. So things like that happen all the time. So again, just you know, the point that you need to ask what your medications are for. If your nurse is in a hurry, just say you can come back to me when you have some time. Um, you know, but don't just take it because somebody's telling you just take it. That's how mistakes happen all the time. Oh, um, uh, uh, David, um, Wes Morrison just uh, threw out a question. There is a distinction between being admitted versus being observed. There, well, there's different reimbursement models between being admitted and being observed, but it's pretty much the same experience. You're going to have, you know, you're going to be, uh, they're going to watch you for 24 to 48 hours if you're being observed, um, but it's the same care. So there's not really much of a difference in the care if, that, if that's what you're asking. Yeah. And I think that the, um, I think that what we're, what we hear an awful lot of is the pressure on the hospital in terms of hospital readmissions. It's sort of, oh, yeah. there's this whole game that's going on behind the scenes and we're sort of pawns in that game. And, and I think that's where they use, isn't that where they'll use that distinction of being observed so that it's, um, they, they don't check that box that the person is admitted because then they could get readmitted and, um, and, and the hospital gets pinged. Yeah, that hospital doesn't get paid for the readmission if you're admitted and you come back within 30 days for certain conditions, um, such as congestive heart failure. That's one that comes to mind. Um, I've also got a, a, a loved one recently who entered the hospital and it seemed like almost right from the entry point that there was this pressure to get them out of the hospital even though they felt very safe and secure because their loved one was being observed. Um, any sort of thoughts on that is, is that when, um, when is the right time to be discharged? And if somebody is being, um, feels like they have pressure put on them. Okay, so I'll use a personal story. My wife who had a baby, and her hemoglobin was like 5.5 and they were trying to rush her out and discharge her and she couldn't even stand up. She needed blood. And so 
She said, you can't discharge me. I need blood. I need to talk to the doctor. So if you think that your medical team isn't listening to you, then what you can do is if you're in a hospital, you can ask to speak to the unit director, who's a nurse who's in charge. You can ask to speak to your doctor uh, and tell them what's going on. Or you could ask at night, you can ask to speak to the house supervisor and say, you know, I, I'm not ready to go home. This is this isn't going to work for me. Um, but you have to you have to have a voice in your own health care. Like you alluded to earlier, you just can't do what the white coats are telling you to do. Great, um, man. Questions and comments are coming in fast and furious. I hope you're okay with this. I'm get, I'll yeah, that's fine. Okay, so um, Junko says, how do you hire your own nurse to go to the hospital for surgery? Like, is that a practice that is done like uh, where you might have somebody with you during the surgery? Yes, there are a lot of nurse advocates out there that are for hire. Um, okay. You, if you Googled it, you would have no problem finding somebody. And um, I will try to drop in. Um, we've had several discussions with patient advocates, many of who which are nurses. And um, I think that would be, especially since what you're just sharing with us, that would probably be money well spent for somebody, especially if they're a loved one or an elder and there's only some challenging surgery. Yes, um, definitely. On the topic, when we were talking about readmission, Cedar says it's a big difference in Medicare reimbursement. And uh, Mary Barney Butler says, yes, and prior to COVID could prevent Medicare failure to pay for rehab. Um, yep. the, the difference between observation and being admitted. Um, yes. And folks in the audience, I know many of us, many of you in the audience, are knowledgeable and experts in this area. So feel free to throw in com comments there that could be helpful to all of us. Um, and, and Mary Barney Butler says, it's so good to hear a healthcare professional honestly addressing the chaos in her healthcare system. Mary, uh, it's ironic. That was the conversation I was having with David before we, we opened this call up. I said, you know, it's so refreshing that he wrote this book. He's an author. He's a doctor trained uh, doctor. Doctorate prepared nurse. Doctor prepared nurse. And he's not tethered to a pharmaceutical or a specific healthcare system. He's just talking about his observations that he's seen in the healthcare system as a professional and a consumer. Um, Let's see, Bob says, and we'll get, I, I wanna get through these questions and then we'll get back to the, uh, some of the topics in your book. Bob Colson says, they inform consent you, but we can't inform consent them. I received right. an out of network bill for a radiologist who did work on me without knowing this while I was in the hospital. How do we ensure all who treat us are in the network? Um, that, that is a great question, Steve. So recently I was reading an article about um, one of our big healthcare insurance companies uh, that was actually taking anesthesiologists out of network. And they were doing that to use their own anesthesiologists and drive down costs. So I know of somebody locally who had a surgery and they said they did it, you know, they contacted the insurance company, they were in network, then they got a $10,000 bill for the anesthesiologist because the anesthesiologist was out of network. And so 
when you're talking to your doctor and your insurance company, which is something you should do before you go into the hospital for a procedure, you want to make sure you want to ask the question, is everybody in network? Because these things happen all the time. I mean, we'll get into some of the discussion around insurance companies and what they're doing, but insurance companies are beholden to their shareholders. They're to, they're to return 15 to 25% profit a quarter. And they're just middlemen. They just sit there, but they have a lot of authority because they're paying for your care. And they have all kinds of rules that, um, that you know, they don't want to break. So for instance, and um, we'll hit prescriptions, but in 2021, in January 2021, an executive order from President Trump went into play saying that hospitals had to take 30 of their procedures and put their pricing up on the web so that you could see it in a customer uh, friendly format. So I, I went to my local hospital to see what a total knee would cost me without insurance. And there were so many medical codes, I would need a coder. And I am a doctor prepared nurse. I would need a coder to understand what it was gonna cost me. They don't wanna give you that information because then you shop for healthcare. So if you get a total knee, if you're relatively healthy, you get a total knee done in a hospital, that may cost you, my area, $12,000. Um, if I go to an ambulatory surgical center, it will cost me about eight. So they won't give you that information, but there is an app and a website called Healthcare Blue Book that you can subscribe to that will give you a ballpark figure of what it costs locally for your procedures. The insurance companies and the hospitals don't want you to know that information. They get fined $300 a day, which is about $110,000 a year. But with the profits they're making, they're definitely covering it up. They're not going to do it voluntarily. Um, there's some legislation out there to make it about $5,500 a day if there were over 30 beds. But, you know, I don't have a lot of faith in, you know, politicians moving that agenda forward. Great. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. I dropped the healthcare blue book into chat for everybody. Um, Bob Colson asks, what is the moon rule? And I looked it up and it says, the moon is a standardized notice to inform beneficiaries, including Medicare health plan enrollees, that they are an outpatient receiving observation services and not an inpatient of the hospital um, or the healthcare system. So um, yeah, with, uh, with, you know, this could make a great hour discussion. In fact, th that's one of the things I like about uh, these discussions is we start going down a rabbit hole. And I, I think doing a full hour on observation versus admission would really uh, be beneficial to our audience. So uh, um, Bob uh, or uh, David, did you wanna comment on anything on the moon rule? Well, the moon rule was put in place because hospitals weren't telling you were an observation patient. So that's why it was put in place. The other thing um, you should know about hospitals while we're on the subject is when you get that survey, when you've been in a hospital um, it, and they're asking you what kind of level of service, be very honest. They get reimbursed according to that survey. So if you had a negative experience, they'll never know it if you don't talk about it. Um, in the old days, you know, people just didn't talk about it, right? We just had to do what the medical community said we had to do. If you have a negative experience, lay it out there. If you have a star performer on your, medic, on your medical team, 
lay that out there too. So that person is recognized and that hospital system knows the reason why they're getting five stars from you is because that person excelled. The other thing you can do proactively is go to the CMS website, look at your hospital star ratings, look at your physician star ratings. If you're going to have an anesthesiologist, look at their star ratings. And I would strongly recommend you get the name, especially what's going on right now with the healthcare insurance entities. And, um, you know, they, they don't care if you pay more, right? Because if you pay more, they get more and, you know, they right. give it to their stockholders. So let me, uh, let me just do these two questions and then we'll get back uh, to some of the topics on your book. But uh, Cedar, I, I dropped Cedar's comment in chat, which says under Medicare, if the patient is sent to rehab or a skilled nursing center, if they were observed, they will be responsible for paying for the skilled nursing or rehab. Also, yeah. if the patient doesn't have Part D, they will have to pay for all of their meds. And uh, this week we had, it's open season now for Medicare. We had a really good discussion on Monday on Medicare and, and what that pays for. Um, Wendy asks, she says, I have a severe multiple chemical sensitivity and reactions to many substances, whether alcohol, fumes, incipients, or drugs. What is the best way to flag those to be sure they will be seen and taken seriously if in an emergency I can't speak for myself? Also, other unusual health conditions that make me very worried about having to be in a hospital in an emergency. Any, um, any words of wisdom, David, uh, for yes. those of us who have these? Yeah, so recently um, you can download your medical record onto an Apple app. So you can put it right into your Apple Health and then you can share, you get total control over what parts of that you wanna share. So you are walking around with all that information on your iPhone and you can share it with your providers as you meet them and, and upload it to their system. So yeah, we're finally in control of our own records, right? In the old days, I can remember people would come in and they'd wanna review their records and they had to sit with a nurse or a doctor to review their records because you know, medical language is all in Latin. I mean, healthcare is complex, Stephen. That's not an accident. It is complex by the entities who are buying for your healthcare dollars. It, they keep it complex because they don't want you to know what's going on behind the curtain. And that's another reason why I wrote this book. I want people to know what's going on behind the curtain. Um, we were talking, is it okay to move to prescriptions? Absolutely. And I'll get to the, the I see there, there's a bunch of other questions in chat. I'll get to those. And Allison, we save the chat and we put it on the same page as the recording. So that'll be, that'll be done. But yeah, let's, let's dive into some other topics. This is fascinating, David. Okay. So have you heard of a pharmacy benefit manager? Uh, no. So tell us what that is. Okay. So this guy sits in the middle of the supply chain between the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies. Problem is that they're mostly owned by pharmaceutical companies at this point. Um, they've been quietly buying them up. And what they do is they make decisions. So they have coupons and rebates from the pharmaceutical companies. And when your doctor writes you a prescription, say he writes you low pressure for your blood pressure, and he writes you, it's okay to fill it with a uh, generic form. They will fill it with a brand form if they've got a a coupon that will benefit them, keep the additional money, and you will pay more money for the prescription. So here's a good case in point. I know an oncologist who is taking care of somebody with a complex medical condition with cancer, stage four, 
And he wrote for a certain chemo drug. The insurance company called him back and said, we're not going to treat with that chemo drug. You're going to have to try this less expensive one. And he said, what do you mean? I know my patient's history and background. I want this chemo drug. And they, and they said, you've got to try this other one first. And he said, I want to talk to the person who made that decision. And these pharmacy benefit managers, you can't get them on the phone. They sit isolated. They're protected. But they're making medical decisions with very little to none medical knowledge. So, you know, that's that's another piece of the puzzle that people don't talk about. But they're driving up drug prices like crazy. And, and you know, that uh, that leads to chapter six of your book is why are prescription why prescriptions cost so much? Uh, can you give us a little glimpse of of why? So we pay for all the research and development for the pharmaceutical industries. So our cost is a lot more than if you go across the border to Canada for medications. So you could pay three hundred dollars for a for a vial of insulin here and in Italy it's free. So I mean, there it's a huge injustice that we do to the American people. I can't tell you how many people I've seen that are rationing insulin because they don't know if they can pay their rent or eat. I mean, and the pharmaceutical companies are making money hand over fist. So here's a good example of, of a personal story. I had an English setter. She was 16 years old. Her name was Pippi Lou, and she uh, had a heart condition. So the vet wrote for Viagra. Why did he write for Viagra? Because it was a pulmonary antihypertensive drug that had an unintended side effect, which caused it to skyrocket in price. So my wife would get a one month supply at a local pharmacy and they wanted over $700 for it um, because, you know, people, it's a popular drug. So then, and this is a good piece of knowledge for you guys to know, she downloaded an app called GoodRx. GoodRx works with those pharmacy benefit managers and coupons and things like that. And she was able to find that drug for $63 for a month's supply at a pharmacy across town. The point being, if you can sell that drug for $63 and still make a profit, what are you doing selling it for $700 or greater across town? And it, you know, you, if you go from one pharmacy to another, the price is going to change. It's craziness. And if you really need a drug to stay alive, like my wife uses EpiPen, she's she has to have them. We hope we never have to use them, but they're for severe allergic reactions. The EpiPen has gone up 574% from 2006 to 2016. And what used to cost you $90 for two pens now costs you $670. Um, the pharmaceutical companies say it's because of demand, because they introduced some legislation, and we'll, we will talk a little bit about politics here, um, because they introduced legislation that schools had to stay stocked up on EpiPens, and that drove the price through the roof. But if you need a drug to stay alive, you're going to pay, and, and they know it, and they, and they know they've got you. There's nothing else you can do. Well, I put the GoodRx uh, website in chat there, and that's a great resource for us. Um, okay, uh, let's see. Let me, um, well, you know what? You, you opened the door there. So um, uh, tell us a little bit about the politics that you gave us uh, a, a little uh, uh, preview on. Okay, so it's, it's amazing to me that every politician that goes into office says they're going to tackle high drug prices, right? They say they're going to go do something about it. Um, 43 million in the 2020 election across the aisle, both sides, uh, was distributed to our politicians. 
They've spent over $6 billion over a 20 year period lobbying these guys. And so our politicians are incentivized not to do anything. So you can, I don't know if you remember back right in the middle of the pandemic that President Trump put out an executive order that we would be the most favored nation and we would pay less for our high prescription drug prices. And he said, in that executive order, he said, we'll give you 60 days and then I want the heads of the big pharmaceutical companies to meet with me in Washington and we'll figure it out together. So he called that meeting. Do you know how many of them showed up, Steve? Hmm. Zero, not a one of them, because it's an executive order, it doesn't have any teeth. Now, solving high prescription drug prices is a huge bipartisan issue. Americans would benefit from it if our elected officials would just reach across the aisle and do it. It's something they could agree on, right? Everybody knows what's going on. It's an underregulated industry. And especially in America, you're, you're going to pay quite a bit. Um, but it's crickets, nothing happens. Another, well, yeah, another thing that people don't know is there's two types of payment structures in America. So there's fee for service, which means when I show up at my doctor's office or if I show up at the hospital, they get paid. They're incentivized to write tests on me, right? So, you know, I might get an extra test here or there or something like that. But there's also this little known, uh, little known payment structure called value-based care. And in value-based care, you're in a network of physicians. They are incentivized to keep you healthy. So they get a certain amount from the insurance company. And if they keep you healthy, they get to keep the profit. If, they, if you don't stay healthy then, and you access the system, then you're going to create expense for them. So when they want you out of the hospital and healthy. And so a good example of that happened to my brother-in-law. My he had a under a bundled payment, meaning that they paid a certain amount of money for his hip surgery. He was under a bundled payment. So he had to stay in network and they did the surgery and they gave him an opioid pain medication. Now this guy doesn't drink. He's never done any drugs as far as to my knowledge. And so when he went home, he started to have chest pain. So away he went to the hospital. And when you get a cardiac workup, that costs a lot of money. And so the next day, a nurse came out to the house, called my sister and came out to the house. My sister was saying to me, oh, it's great. You know, the nurses are coming out every day to check on him and it's all free. And I said, well, sister is not really free. I said, they're looking for their best interest because they got paid a certain amount of money for his surgery. And when he went to the ER, they had to eat it and, and you know, they had to pay it themselves. But value-based care is really the answer to driving down the costs and Take the pandemic, for instance. So hospitals and we as taxpayers bailed them out because they weren't making enough money and we had to keep them viable. Well, that's a fee-for-service problem. Under value-based care in 2020, they actually saved $4.1 billion. In fact, they were trying to get a bill into the infrastructure package to, because they thought they could save an additional $313 million by pushing value-based care out. Um, there's some physicians that are hesitant to do value-based care, but the ones that do it and they do it well, that's the model. That's where you want to be taken care of because you have better outcomes. They show that you get your flu shot 17% more of the time, 34% more are going to get their annual eye exam because they are incentivized to keep you healthy. And that's what healthcare is all about. That's, that's putting the care back into healthcare. Yeah. And I dropped a, uh, uh, a definition from the Cleveland Clinic into uh, chat on value-based care. This is great. I, this is the first time that I've heard of that. 
let me um, let me go back to a couple of the questions that yes. are are here. Um, and first, uh, let's see. I'm going into chat. I saw one from Bonnie that was good, and she said. Uh, Bonnie Elliott says, not everyone can afford an aging life care manager or a patient advocate. Is there anyone at the hospital like a care manager or social worker that can objectively assist a, a patient? Yes, and that, that's a great point. You can always ask for a care manager or a social worker. Usually most of the emergency departments have one in there. And basically because of that observation rule and, and admission rule, so that They'll look at what the doctor writes and see if the observation patient meets the criteria. And sometimes they're allowed to change it depending on, you know, how the policy is written at the hospital. Um, let's see. Mary uh, Barney Butler says, do we have a bona fide value-based uh, care here in Northern Virginia? Um, if anybody in the audience knows, by all means, uh, throw that into chat. I'll do some research on it. But uh, David... Um, I know you're based out in North Carolina, but um, is there a way to identify where value-based care providers are nationwide? That's a great question. So this is what you should do because this sends a very strong message to your doctor. You ask your doctor if he's part of an accountable care organization. Accountable care organization uses value-based care to care for you. So Ask him that because it sends a message. Because if he's not, and he's getting asked that question by, you know, 20 patients, he needs to get in the network. That's, that sends a very strong signal. If he's not, then you can ask him, who, where is there an accountable care organization that could treat me around here? So now he knows he's losing your business, right? So the funny thing about value-based care is I read a survey that only 25% of Americans really know what it is. They, you know, the other 75% don't know. And so if you don't know, you're not going to do it. And of course, you know, insurance companies aren't going to be out there advertising this. Um, so check with your doctor, ask about accountable care organizations, um, go on the web and search for your area to see who has it. I think Sientra mm -hmm. is a big entity out in Northern Virginia. So I would be surprised if you didn't have a value-based care um, well, accountable and, and I just did a quick search and CMS, which I dropped it in there, CMS Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services talks about uh, they've got several links on their website where you can find accountable care organizations. So that's really good. And I definitely am part of that 25% and I'm in the, the healthcare uh, business here. So um, uh, thanks for that. Okay. Um, all right. Bob Colson says, I gave each of my local hospitals my advanced directives so I can be sure they will access them if and when they're needed. So um, that's, that's very uh, forward thinking there, Bob. Um, let's see, uh, Diana asks, can you give your opinion on Medicare Advantage versus Medicare Supplement Plan and Medigap policies? I'm not sure if that's an area of expertise for you, but just your thoughts on that? I dabble in it. Um, Medicare Advantage, it, if, they're, if you're in a value-based care organization, is definitely a plus. Um, if you're not, if, you're, if, they're, if they have you in a fee-for-service, I'd stay away from it. Um, but you, can, you, you have the right to ask that and say, I want to be in a value Whoops. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. Um, 
David, if you can hear me, you just lagged on us. Um, and it might, I hope it's on your end and not on mine. Can somebody type in chat if you can hear me? And okay, you can hear me, we just can't hear David. So David, if you wanna log out and log back in again, um, I think that's the best solution. And um, okay, <laughs> these are tech. Okay, so we'll get David in a moment, but um, you know what? The good thing is, is that if I've got Ken and uh, Dr. Alfred, if you could uh, turn on your camera and mic while we're waiting for David to get back on, we could start our tour of Alfred House, which we're visiting here. And, uh, oh, I got to prompt you there. Okay. So if you just tuned in. Okay. okay. So uh, Ken, I think, oh, there you are, David. Okay. Oh, here you go. Unmute. Hit that unmute button. Made it do the tour. Yeah. Sorry yeah. about that. My connection drops and that never happens to me. Okay. And then uh, Ken, sorry about that false alarm. We'll, we'll get back to you at... Um, uh at the conclusion here okay okay all right okay and maybe it was a Our, pharmaceutical company interrupted my connection I don't yeah know. yeah exactly <laughs> they don't like that we're talking about talking about them okay all right so let's see uh that was a little distraction but we were talking about the um uh talking about that um medicare, medicare advantage advantage and what have you yep. okay uh let's see bob says don't the social workers get paid by the hospital too? Like, is there, uh, I mean, the previous, obviously if you can afford to have this objective third party advocating for you, that's great. But one would think that a social worker in a hospital, um, while they're being paid for a hospital, they also have their, um, their code of ethics for their profession. And I know it's not a perfect world, but I'm assuming that um, that that you should be able to to get them to advocate for you a little bit more. Um, yes, um, I've never I've never and in my hospital career I've never seen anybody um, who didn't perform ethically in that role. But the, the best thing that you can do is get a nurse in your network. Doesn't cost you anything. I can't tell you how many times. I get hit on my phone. Somebody says, hey, I'm going to the hospital. Um, this is what's going on. I'm like, you got your medications with you? Do you have this? Do you have that? You know, I mean, so if you have a nurse in your network, that's the best because nurses want to help people. I mean, we didn't get into this for the money. We got into it because we wanted to help people. Hence why I wrote this book so I could exactly. help people. So when and I was. You know, I, I, we've all been at barbecues where, uh, or where one of our friends or family is a nurse and they discover after the fact that um, a loved one was in the hospital and you hear this time and time again, they'll be talking about the challenges and it's like, well, why didn't you call me? Oh, I thought you were too busy. So one great idea that I, I think you're, you're clearly advocating for is, is that if you've got a friend, a family, a loved one, an acquaintance who's a nurse, check in with them and just yes. say, hey, you know, I was on this discussion today and I realized that if I ever need to go in the hospital, is it okay that I give you a jingle? And, um, uh, and I'm 
I think nine out of 10 are going to be like, absolutely. And if you don't, I'm going to be upset. Um, I think 10 out of 10. <laughs> so uh, somebody asks, do you provide any healthcare con consultation services and or healthcare advocacy services? Thank you for your book and your hard work. We need this very much. Um, yeah, is, is, is that something that you offer, David, or, um, uh, you know? Not at, yeah, not at this point. Um, I, it's something that I've toyed with a little bit, um, but, you know, I, I'm pretty busy with this book and my day job and, and, and all the other stuff I've got going on. So um, I yeah. thought it was more important. So, you know, when I was in the hospital working in an ICU, I could help two patients over a 12-hour shift. When I became a hospital administrator, I could help several nurses take care of patients, which broadened my perspective. When I went into healthcare IT, I could change the way a community, uh, doctors at a community practice. And then when I finished a doctorate degree, I thought, what's the best way to help people? And I thought, you know what, write something that they can understand, give them a handbook on how to move through the system. What do they do when the insurance company denies them? What do they do when they run into that high priced prescription? Um, and most importantly, you know, how do we have a better system? How do we move from fee-based services to value-based care? So that's why I did. I'm trying to be an advocate in that area. Now, there may come a time where I do something different, but that's where I'm at. Yeah, but um, I, I threw David's email into the chat there. And, uh, and honestly, that's what makes you a great guest on this discussion is, is that you're like, if you said, oh, yeah, I charge by the hour or what have you. You're very objective. And, and that leads to Bob's uh, question, which is, how is the medical community responding to your book? Have you received any sort of um, pros or cons or any comments from the community? So um, I was actually in front of about 900 nurses yesterday, virtually, talking to them about the book and about why it was important. And what I'm hearing from the medical community is thank you for writing this. You know, we saw this going on all the time. For instance, in my book, I talk about one doctor when I was uh, the night code nurse, uh, hospital administrator, 80% of the patients I saw were were coding because they were touched by this guy at bad hands and bad judgment. Um, you know, he, we didn't have star ratings back then for you to go to CMS and check them out. And that's why I encourage you to do it. And I went to administration, they were like, keep monitoring the data. And um, unfortunately, there's a terrible story in there of a young mother who had just given birth who died because he missed something. Um, you know, that kind of stuff happens. And, you know, you couldn't do anything different in that situation. But I can do something different now, that's for sure. I can get American people to understand, go to that CMS star rating site, check out your doctor, get, get yourself to value-based care where they're incentivized to take care of you. Um, that's my passion. Great. Um, Bob follows up, he said to our thing about the nurses a friend strategy, is there any way that a nurse would get in trouble for sort of providing that type of guidance? Uh, good, good question, Bob. So um, let, me, let me share a personal experience, Bob, because um, what happened to me one time, I was in the grocery store and I heard this woman talking to a friend of hers and saying, I'm gonna go to this hospital where I work and get this procedure done by this doctor. And I knew the doctor didn't have good outcomes. And so I was wrestling with it because I'm like, well, if I say something and she reports me, but it wasn't really about me, right? Now that I look at it in hindsight, Walking up the frozen food section, this woman's coming dead on right in front of me. 
And I said, hey, I couldn't help but hear what you said about getting your procedure done. And, and the doctor, oh, yeah, he's got a wonderful bedside manner, which he did. Um, and I said, so I can't tell you who I am, but I work at the hospital. And I said, and you don't want your procedure done by him. You want to find another doctor. Could I recommend so-and-so? And, uh, and she said, she looked at me kind of shocked, um, but she said, thank you. So, yeah, there are repercussions if you're tied to the organization um, that you have to be careful. I couldn't, I couldn't have gone in there on the day of surgery, Bob, and said, you know, hey, don't get your, don't get your surgery done by this guy, you know, unless you want to spend many months recovering. But in a grocery store, I could do it. So, yeah, there, there are, there's some tricks to it, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. So, so bear in mind, and, you know, if, if you are asking a friend for feedback, just recognize they're an educated friend, um, you know, so, um, okay. Uh, we've got a couple of questions, a question and a comment that I'm going to drop into chat here. And it relates to um, MOLST and POLST. Uh, and MOLST, if you're not familiar with it, it's medical order, life-sustaining treatment, and, and um, physician order for life-sustaining treatment. And person asked, can you explain and talk about these two signed directives and if your wishes are that you do not want to be taken to the hospital, can you protect from being taken to the hospital if you're concerned? Um, and I, I drop those into chat for everybody as well. Yeah. So any so, thoughts on most impulse? Oh, yes. Um, in fact, in my book, I remember what chapter it is, there is a a chapter called making your wishes known chapter five yep. you should definitely read that at a minimum because that dealt with my stepfather and my mother so you have to have those things posted on your refrigerator somewhere you know and so if somebody calls emt they are supposed to look for that document on your refrigerator um so you know you you don't want to if if you don't want to be treated for end-of-life care you got to make sure your wishes are known. In the book, I talk about my stepfather got in an accident and he carried his DNR in his wallet. Well, they revived him. He broke every limb. He had a terrible time of it. It was at the beginning of COVID. And I said, did you find his wallet? Was the first question I asked them. And they said, no, we haven't found his wallet. Well, they located it and found the DNR, uh, but it was too late. He had been resuscitated. Now, my mother in that same chapter, she she was having a heart attack and I knew her cardiac system, you know, she wasn't a good candidate for, for open heart or anything like that. So she actually, and she was pretty scattered. She grabbed her, her forms and, you know, that the power of attorney that they would call me, um, her living will. And she went to the hospital with it when they picked her up in the ambulance and they called me and said, your mother's here. And, and you know, she's having a heart attack. And I knew that that was the end, but I even messed that up as a medical professional. I was, they're like, can we take her to the cath lab? Can we put a tube in out? I went into sun mode. I was like, oh my God. I said to my wife, what do I do? And she said, tell them to do it. And so I did. And about three minutes later, I got a call back that the picture had changed and that was not an option. Thank God for that. Cause I would have beat myself up forever if that happened. But yeah, all that to say, whoever's going to, whoever's going to be your advocate at the end of life, make sure they totally understand what you want. You have that discussion. Because we're all we're all going out at some point, right? Yeah, and and this is a advanced medical directives is something that I feel like we talk at least once a month about here. Um, okay, I'm looking at the clock and we're getting close to the top of the hour here. Um, uh, Susan Ship 
Schiffman says, where on the CMS website does it give ratings of doctors or is there a place where you can, that you trust to get ratings of doctors? Yeah, you can look on the star rating system, Susan. So you would want to narrow your search down to star ratings. You could do hospitals and then you can do doctors. Um, without actually logging on and showing you, it's kind of hard to walk you through it. Okay, so star rating. Yeah, it's the star ratings. Okay. They're rated great. one to five. And, and then I'll, I'll look that up and see if I can help uh, out. But um, what I'm thinking, uh, Dr. Wilcox, to sort of close things out and wrap things up, and I'd love to have you back on again. You're fascinating. Um, but chapter 15 of your book is where do we go from here? Um, without uh, blowing the, uh, the plot of the book, can you give us some insights on where do we go next? So we saw during this pandemic that many of the healthcare um, agencies that were tied to the government, like the WHO, the CDC, um, the FDA, were coming out with all kinds of wild recommendations, right? Wear a bandana. And they did that because they didn't want you scarfing up masks and things like that. What we don't have in this country is an independent council of clinicians that can actually disseminate information and are not tied to any kind of payment structure from the government. We saw a lot of, you know, dummying down what clinicians were saying and things like that during the pandemic, um, which happened to fall during an election year. But we need that. That's if you can get trusted clinicians, because a lot of people don't trust those agencies anymore. In fact, two people from the FDA actually quit over the booster shot because they didn't see enough data that said, you know, that that, that was a good strategy. So Big Farm, you know, the flu shot that you take every year is a variant of the 1918 flu. When this whole pandemic started, they knew they were in a hundred year strategy. That's why they dropped everything and went to make vaccines on our taxpayer dollars, except Pfizer, who didn't take any money. Um, so, you know, they, they know what they're doing and booster shots, big, big money for them. It's five to 10% more efficient. You know, you, you got to weigh it out, but there's not a lot of big science behind that that says that that's the way to go. Great. And then um, Wes Morrison asks, what do you think of the website HealthGrades that grades doctors and hospitals? Um, that is an, that's another alternative. Yes, definitely. Yep, I forgot about that one. Yeah, but, but with all of these, these websites, I mean, a lot of times, whether it be a doctor, a lawyer, or what have you, make sure that you sort of look at the about part of the of those websites and just make sure that you're not sort of falling into kind of a pay to play type um, uh, directory, um, which I know we've got quite a few of those um, yeah. in, in every in every category. Um, not to say that some of those can't be helpful, but you just need to sort of re realize that. And I think working with websites like CMS, you know, that are government or nonprofit based, JCO, you know, things like that, uh, you've got a better chance of an objective. But, but I also like to sort of remind people that just because somebody has a rating by any given organization, um, bring that rating up to them as a provider, when you're looking at them, it's like, hey, I just searched this up on my phone and it said this, get their feedback and, and, and what have you. Yeah. So, um, and Steve, I also have a uh, website. It's dr 
davidwilcox.com that um, you can access to. I've got information up on that. Okay, great. I'll make sure to put that on our on the recording page. And um, uh, David, I'm so glad that our paths have crossed. And I know that our audience, based on the comments that we're getting, are, are very excited too. Um, and let's stay in touch. And I'd love to bring you back on again, because I think we could go for uh, quite some time. But um, so thank you. I'll share this with everyone. I'll share the, your contact. And, um, and we'll be talking to you soon. And then, um, David, you're, feel free to go back to uh, doing your thing. And we're going to get to uh, touch base here with Ken Silverstein now with uh, Alfred House and get a tour of this community that I'm in. Thanks, Thank you, David. Steve. I appreciate you having me on. Take care, everybody. You bet. Okay. Um, all right, Ken, let's give this a shot. If you want to unmute and turn on your video, uh, we can work on getting a tour. Okay. Um, okay. I just, so I did want to just share some, I don't know if David signed off or not, but I started using GoodRx a couple of years ago and uh, went into the pharmacist and she went on a tirade about how this is going to put pharmacists out of business because of the, the reduction in the cost. I'm like scared to go in there now and give a prescription because she just oh, went off on me. Go to another <laughs> pharmacy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So first off, before we, before I kind of hand off to you, um, in if somebody can type into chat, can keep on talking. I want to make sure okay. that people can hear you. Okay. Um, okay. So, so welcome everybody on behalf of Alfred House. Uh, Dr. Alfred just had to leave. Um, she had another meeting. So, but she thanks everybody and thanks to Steve for allowing us to do this. Uh, the, the Alfred House Four Villa has literally just been completed. We this past summer uh, was completely gutted the inside and modernized and contemporized, and it's just simply gorgeous. Uh, gorgeous. I'm right now in the master suite, um, which I am now referring to as my room. Um, so this can actually hold two people if need be. Um, the house overall will hold six residents. And Dr. Alfred explained to you the concept of the concierge. So it, everything in here is brand, literally brand new. Um, this bathroom is, I mean, everything is ready, move in ready. Um, Great. And so what I'm gonna do, Ken, is this is good. Keep on giving the tour. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show the closet. This yep, is the, and this I'm gonna is the So now I'm going to head back out to the main part. Again, this household, six residents. There's four on the main floor and two downstairs. Um, so we'll, this is a sample of one of the rooms upstairs. This looks great. And then it is a shared bathroom, which is directly across the hall here. And then as we enter this bathroom, we can come into another room. Dr. Alford worked with an interior designer that we she used for Symphony House as well to do this. And they literally had books of furniture on the conference table in the office just going through. I mean, she handpicked everything to the to the throw pillows. Well, I'm here and it really looks beautiful. Uh, she's, you did a great job and uh, I'm really excited. Yeah, for, it's really uh, 
you and Dr. Al. Thank you. Um, then we have another room here, guest uh, resident room here. And then I will take you downstairs where we have two private rooms, both with a private bathroom. We also have sitting area down here in the office here. The meds will be locked up down here as well. This is the common area. And then as I said, both rooms downstairs have private bathroom. Private bathroom here, shower. This is the bathroom to the other room. I mean, just beautiful tile. Yeah, it really looks great, uh, Ken. Yeah. And over here so, is just another walk-in closet. We're having a little excellent. work done on that, so yeah. Um, and, and then this is, as Steve said, this is, a, this is a very, very private residential area back here. Um, so, and location-wise, for those of you who know Montgomery County, we're basically across the street from Leisure World. It's and um, how much is the monthly cost? So the, the uh, price point starts at $6,000 for level one for one of the rooms upstairs. Great. And then um, for those of you who showed up a little bit uh, late, this is, uh, a, you get to see the beautiful neighborhood. You get to see uh, this, um, what I love is an accessible entryway. Oh yeah. With uh, no barriers to entry. And there is a deck on the back as well. And we're good neighbors. Um, we take good care of the landscaping. Matter of fact, we were raking leaves this morning. So we are good neighbors. Well, this has been awesome, Ken. Thank you. Uh, and it's sort of a first of a kind thing for us here with, um, <laughs> with our uh, digital discussions. And uh, hopefully we'll do more of these because I think it's a great way to sort of spotlight different providers that are out there and what they're doing. So thanks for being the guinea pig for us on this <laughs> well, first Well, thanks one. for having us. And uh, what a great discussion today with yeah, Dr. Wilcox. it really was, yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna go inside, turn off my computer. Okay. I'll send the recording to everybody. Thank you, everybody. And please call me if you have any more questions about Alfred House Villa or any of our other nine homes in the county. Oh. Have a good weekend. <laughs>